Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics. We're here with our guest, Dr. George Yancey. We've had Dr. Yancey on before, not, not that long ago. Uh, and he's back because he has a brand new book that's out that we want to we want to spend a lot of time talking about. It's a super insightful, uh, very I think very encouraging, very hopeful book entitled "Beyond Racial Division: A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism." Dr. George Yancey is professor of sociology at Baylor University. I uh, spent many years at the University of North Texas before going over to Baylor. He's published widely published. Uh, on race and religion uh, and lots of other topics in his field of sociology. So, uh, Dr. Yancey, thank you so much for joining us uh, for part one of this conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, in, in your book, you, you start out your book in a really transparent way because you talk a bit about your own personal journey in writing about race. In fact, I, I've, I've read both. You wrote two great books on race about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, I've read both of those. And then as you describe it in, your, in this current book, you stopped writing about race. Why did you stop? And why have you taken up the subject again at present? Yeah, so I think about 15, 16 years ago, I just came to the conclusion that I've said everything I had to say on race. Hmm. And I, I, there are certain scholars who say the same thing again and again. They just get different data sets and they just say the same thing again and again. That's true. And I just did not want to be one of them. Uh, so so I, I felt like I had nothing really left to say. Uh, there are other things that are very interesting to me. And so why not go and study those things? And, and for me, uh, I needed to separate myself from race so I can really focus in on some other things that had really caught my attention. Uh, as far as why I got back into it, I, I guess, you know, not the, the year 2020 just shook me into it. I had made that cardinal mistake, which is saying, I'm never going to talk about race again. And I've discovered in my life that when I say never to God, that God has funny ways of making me <laughs> like I was never going back to school after I got my, my bachelor's degree. And here I am with a professor of doctorate. So that sort of thing. Uh, and so those the events the George Floyd, uh, the uh, murder of Albury, those events kind of shook me up. And I just felt, and, and also not just shook me up, I sort of pulled away from just social media and the news for a little while. And when I got back, uh, it was like people were reaching out to me in a way that hadn't happened over the past 15, 16 years. And one of the reasons why I think I got away was I thought, well, I've said this, y'all do it if you want to, don't, don't do it if you don't want to, I got other things to do. Well, now I had a lot of people who were saying, well, what you, you know, they discovered beyond racial gridlock and things of that nature. And, and I just was starting to think, this is God pulled me back into it. And then I got the final kick in the pants to get me into it. And that was my wife who <laughs> said, you know, you ought to write another book again. And, you know, and I went, woman, don't you know how much time it takes to write a book? What are you, don't you see how busy I am? And of course, you know, three weeks later, I'm like, okay, you're right. I'm writing a book. Uh, <laughs> You, you know how it is. It's like, she wants me to write a book. I want to write a book, so we compromise, and I write a book. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like and, my house. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think God had really pulled me back into it. I think God knew I needed the, the, the time away. And there, were, and I think I'm proud of the work I've done in the meantime, in that interim period. 
but I think I needed to pull away. And now I think God's bringing me back in probably for the rest of my life. I'll, mm, I'll be dealing with racial great. issues. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Could I take you back? You mentioned this in the book a little bit where why you even first decided to write and address the topic of race. Because if this was 10, 15 years ago, clearly before then you were already into academia. Yes. What, what was it that first got you into it and thought, you know what, I need to contribute in this area? To be honest, the thing that first got me into it was a broken relationship. Uh, I grew up, you know, obviously I'm an African-American since this is a podcast. People not, may not know that. And so, you know, I, I experienced racism. I saw racism. I ran into racism. But I always had the attitude that, you know what, people can be racist, but I can overcome it. You know, people may not want me to succeed in school, but I'll do that anyways. And by and large, that, that's what happened. You know, I, I got my bachelor's degree and stuff and I went on to grad school and then I fell in love. Uh, she was white. And I thought it was going to be okay because her mom was, she told me her mom was this liberal feminist who hated God. And so I thought, well, that's not good, but at least she's probably liberal. Well, <laughs> she, she was not on racial issues. Her mom refused to meet me at all. Oh, really? Gosh. Yes. I, I always felt that if I could have met her mom, she could have seen what a wonderful guy I was, and then she would have known her daughter was in good hands. But no, she, she absolutely refused to meet me. And that... It was the first time in my life I felt I was denied something purely because I was black. Wow. There's, I, I could not attach. I could not say, like, if I didn't get something, a, a scholarship, I could say, well, maybe I wasn't the best person. You know, maybe it was racism. I don't know. But there was no doubt about this. Mm. And that shook up my world in a lot of ways. You know, not just on the on racial plane, but in a lot of ways, that shook up my world. And that got me thinking, all right, what is this thing, racism, where people act so irrationally? And uh, and so that got me into it. George, let me dive into your book here. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that you say you want to do and accomplish in the book is move beyond the ideologies of what you're calling colorblindness on, one, on the one end and anti-racism on the other. Just briefly, how do you understand each of those terms and why do we need to move beyond them? I think colorblindness is probably the easier one to just briefly explain. And that's just, you're just going to ignore race. You're going to pretend that race does not exist. So you treat everyone exactly the same. And that's the notion of colorblindness. Anti-racism, really anti-racism has developed from other attempts of uh, awareness encounters and such. And it's a more proactive attempt to deal with racism on, on multiple levels, not just personal, but structural. And it's very proactive. Is It's very much what, what in my former book I call the white responsibility model. The problem is among European Americans and their structures, and so we have to fix that. So, And you can see it, of course, in some of the latest books that come out. Uh, so you want to talk about race, uh, uh, white fragility, uh, Kenny's book on... Uh, how to be an anti-racist, those sort of books have come out very, very assertive. And it is a dominant paradigm in a lot of, a lot of the, uh, the uh, more, uh, I don't want to say progressive culture, because I think it goes beyond just progressive culture. When people want to solve racial problems, they usually look towards anti-racism unless they're really wedded to colorblindness. George, one of the things about your book that I loved is I'm reading it going, yes, anti-racism needs this critique. But then there are other points I'm reading it going, 
Yeah, he's also pressing me to challenge my own categories here. I don't think anybody could read this book uh, who's honest without being stretched one way or the other and looking in the mirror. And what you do is you model this in the sense that at the beginning, you say that you are a part of the problem when it comes to race. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think it's important for me to say that because it's easy for me to say, look, you know, I'm an African-American who has studied race for decades, who has published on this subject, peer-reviewed stuff, peer-reviewed books, peer-reviewed articles. And so I have it all figured out. The problem you saying that is that's not true because I'm limited being human, having depravity. And so if I don't recognize that I fall victim to the same biases and confirmation biases and, and, and propensities that we all have, even though I have all this education and experience, then I can develop an arrogance to where I believe I have the answer and my job now is to force you to accept my answer. And that's the exact attitude that is creating the racial division we have in our society. So I want to, and I don't always do this, I don't always do this, I'm not perfect in this, but I do want to examine my own presuppositions from time to time and look at myself and look at how I engage in subtle racism or subtle uh, ways of mistreating others, which I should not do. I so, I so appreciate that transparency that's, uh, I think, uh, that runs, you know, throughout the book. You, you also maintain that culturally we're, we're in a really unhealthy cycle when it comes to racial issues. Can you explain what that cycle is and, and why it seems so intractable? Yeah, so here's what will happen, and this is my observation, is that we'll have some sort of racial incident. It, and it could be a police shooting. It could be a, you know, protest. Uh, it could be a wide variety of things. You know, it could be someone saying a racial epitaph. And then you'll get all these protests against that incident. And then you'll get a counter protest against that incident. And then it'll be on the news for a while. And then things will die down. And it's like we think we're in some sort of equilibrium, but we're not. Because the next time we have an incident, we go back again. You know, you get the protest, you get the counter protest, dies down. And there doesn't seem to be a way in which we are getting away from that. We know it's going to happen again. It's just a matter of time. Something's going to happen. And then we'll get the protests, counter protests, and then the dying down. I want to find a way in which we can break that, that sort of cycle because it's not healthy. It's harmful. And that's why I hope this book can help us to, to move towards doing. What are some of the things you think are preventing people from entering into this cycle that you're, you're talking about and going beyond, to quote the title of the book, beyond racial division, staying in this unhealthy cycle? What are some things that hold us back from entering into this process you're talking about? I think there's a part of human nature that makes us not want to admit when we're wrong. And we know from the social sciences that we tend to be drawn towards our group. We create these in-groups and out-groups. And when you do that, you create these sort of caricatures of the out-groups. So they're the enemy. The, their only purpose is to be defeated. And when we have that mentality, and I'm talking about everyone, I'm not trying to single out a single group. So you know, I hope your audience thinks about their own group when they think about this. That what your group is doing is they're singling out an out group. When the incident comes up, 
no matter what the outgroup says, no matter how right they may be, you must stigmatize them and fight against them. You cannot acknowledge that they may have a point, that they may have a perspective you've not seen and you can learn from. And they feel the same way about you. So when there's an incident, some groups feel they have an advantage to protest and to bring their issues to light. Other groups resent this, but they eventually have find a reason to counter protest and fight against them. And the only thing that happens is the incident goes away for a while and it dies down. But the, the uh, anger and the resentment and the hostility still exists under the surface. So that's what I think is happening. And that's what we have to try to break out of if we're going to get out of this cycle. Now, George, you describe your approach as a, a mutual accountability approach. To tell our listeners a bit more what you mean by that approach and why, why do you think this is a better option than the others that are on the table? Okay, so given what I just said on how we don't see how we could be wrong or how they could be right, what I believe we need is we have to enter into communication that is productive and helpful rather than just shouting past each other. Because when we engage in that sort of conversation and we're humble enough to acknowledge that I might have something to learn from these people, obviously, I believe that I'm mostly right because if I didn't, I wouldn't have these beliefs, but maybe I could learn from someone else. And if others approach me with that, then we have a chance to build something where everyone is included into the, into the conversation and the solution includes everyone's needs. When I say mutual, what I mean is that everyone, regardless of race or perspective, has a responsibility of entering into this conversation. I'm not saying that the solution is going to be mutual, but I'm saying that the conversation has to be. Because if it is not, then all we're going to do is set ourselves up for more of the animosity and anger that we have kept seeing in our society. What's the response you're hearing? I know the book is just really coming out right now, so to speak, kind of this spring. But when you have conversations with people, when you post stuff on social media, is there a resistance because people want to fight the culture war from whichever side of the divide they're on? Or is there a sense of breath, just kind of like this is a breath of fresh air, which is how I experienced reading it? What's the general response you get if you can gauge that? Yeah, I, you know, of course I get both. You know, I get people who say, mm. boy, I wish I, you know, I've known something's wrong and this is putting a finger on what's wrong. I've known, I've wanted to talk about race, but I've sensed that what people are telling me what to do does not work. Uh, and so I, I get that. I also get from both sides, you know, the the individuals who are dead set in their, in their perspective and my challenge of it, because as you all read the book, I do challenge both. I don't challenge just the anti-racist. I do challenge do. those with a colorblind no. perspective. And I think I challenge them very well. Uh, and so I, I do get that pushback. I just saw a survey not too long ago that, that used critical race theory as a proxy for racial attitudes. And based on that survey, what I think the percentage of the country is is that 20% of the country, I think, is so wedded to colorblindness that's hard for them to see any alternative. And 20% is so wedded to anti-racism hmm, it's hard to see any alternative. But that leaves hmm. 60% that I think is in the middle going, either they don't, they're not paying attention 
which, you know, they're busy with living life, or they don't want to go either way or go either way too hard because they sense problems in both the ignoring race and the anti-racism approach. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if some of the folks, you know, my, might be folks that have entered the conversation, found it too hard, and just say, put it, just sort of threw up their hands and said, I'm out. Uh, th- this is ju- this is too hard. Uh, do you see? Do you get that response also? Yes, I, I do have people who said that they tried to engage, found the conversation was not productive, not helpful, uh, and so they decided not to to stop to stop engaging in, in the conversation. And so I do run into those folks who are hesitant to engage in the conversation. They they they're they're afraid of being slapped down, and I do I do not blame them given how we're having the conversation today. I understand why people, you know, I try to put myself in the position of a person who's white. If I was white, would I be eager to have this conversation? No, I would not. Now, maybe part of that lack of eagerness is that I don't want to confront some of the realities uh, of race and racism in our society and, and understand that. But to be honest and fair, another reason why is I feel like whatever I say, someone can just say you're being a racist and dismiss me. Do I want to enter a conversation where people could dismiss what I have, my concerns, so easily? Probably not. So we got to create an atmosphere where everyone, and I understand that people of color have been shut out of the conversation for, for, for a very long time. And obviously, I'm not wanting us to be shut out again. But we got to bring everyone in because if we don't get buy-in from multiple quarters, then all we're going to do is have a cycle where one group's going to have power and then the other group's going to fight against them until they get power. And that's that's what we're, that's going to be our life in our society. Yeah, that, that's not an attractive option. No, it's not. Uh, now, you, well, it seems to me one of, the, one of the things that you've tried to do to, to not alienate potential conversation partners is to avoid terms that, that are, in, are inflammatory to one group or another. So you... You know, you refer to the U.S. as racialized, and you avoid using the term racist and white supremacist. Is that did I, did I get that right? Is that the rationale for why you use the terms that you do and avoid the ones that you avoid? Yeah, there's research that shows that when people feel threatened in conversation, they literally shut down and cannot hear you any longer. So, if I want to reach someone, I got to talk to them in a way that they can hear me. If I talk to them in a way that's overly threatening, they literally cannot hear me, and the conversation goes nowhere. My Having talked with whites, and ha- my experience is that when you throw white supremacy and racism at a lot of whites, they literally shut down. They cannot hear anything you have to say after that. So you have to figure out a way. I mean, if I care about those these people, if I care about people because I – and I should, as a Christian, care about everyone – I should care about trying to talk to them in a way that they can understand where I'm coming from. And so that's why I've learned not to engage in conversation in certain ways. To be fair, there are ways whites engage in conversations that are threatening to people of color as well. So this is a two-way street. Now, for, for, to, for, for example? Uh, uh, I don't see race. Mm-hmm. Because when you say you don't see race, because as an African-American man, my race is part of my social identity, an important part. Not the most important part. That's been a child of God. But it is an important part. And so when you say you don't see race, you're saying you, there's a part of me, an important part of me, that you just can't see. Now, I've been around enough uh, 
why to say this, to know where it's coming from. And so for me, I can still go on with the conversation, but a lot of people of color can't from that point on. I mean, they'll be there and they'll, they'll look like they're listening, but they can't hear you because of the, of the threatening nature of that sort of comment. George, can you give me an example, just since you've been writing on this and obviously thinking about it more than 10 to 15 years, is there a way in which your perspective has changed over time, big or small, where just having these conversations, uh, self-reflection, being open and starting with saying, maybe I'm a part of the problem, which is a, a, such a humble way to approach this? Are there any things that come to your mind, just big or small, how your views have changed about race or just the best way to approach racial division? Yeah, I think that for me, the biggest change as far as my opinion, perspective, uh, obviously I've done more research, done more reading, and so I'm, I'm better up on, my, on what I think. But I think as far as changing, I think when I wrote 15 years ago, I had more confidence that I could articulate an answer. And I realized that even if I even if my answer is correct, if it doesn't come in the in the situation of a conversation, it feels like I'm imposing an answer on people and that imposition of an answer is going to generate the resistance that's going to fight against people. And so I'm I think I've become more wedded to the need for a conversation. Uh, an honest conversation. I mean, I, I, I think I always have been, but I think I did feel like I had answers. I still feel that those answers I had were probably correct, but I want to be open to the fact that maybe in conversation with others, they could be tweaked or, or maybe, maybe there are things that are not correct at all. Uh, so I'm less confident that I have uh, the answer that is going that if everyone adopted this would be okay. Uh, I'm more into let's have a conversation and get to an answer that we can all live with. When you talk about the importance of an honest conversation, I know there's probably a, a, some fears in the minds of people that are going, number one, we have had this conversation. What's the point of continuing it? And others who might say, I don't feel comfortable having this conversation because if I share what I really think, either someone won't hear me, like you said, or I'm going to get canceled if I don't hold the right beliefs. I'm all in with you on the value of conversation, but I know you've thought about this, that there's some fears people have or concerns they have even entering into that to start with. Right. I think the first thing I would say is I don't think we've had that conversation very much. Now, we have hmm. had some conversations. I think we've had a lot of arguments, to be honest. I don't know if we've had a lot of conversations as much. We've had some. I'm not saying that no one has done that. You know, that's that would be arrogant for me to say. I'm the first one to say, let's have a conversation, a real conversation. Sure. Uh, but I don't think we've had nearly as much as we think that we have. And our, our conversations tend to be more monologues and dialogues. So I think that that's, you know, as far as the fears, I understand the fears. And that's why, you know, in the book, I talk about ground rules for what the conversation needs to look like. You know, I encourage active listening rather than jumping. In fact, the the urge to cancel or the urge to shame, you can get short-term gains from that. You know, you can engage in shaming and that sort of thing and get short-term political gains. But what you don't get is you don't get buy-in and you don't get people who are willing to support you and to support the ideas that you have there. You get people who are going to sabotage those ideas. So I'm trying to tell folks who really feel passionate and 
feel that they what what they're saying is right and what they should do that if you really want to engage and research backs this up you really want to engage people to create people who are going to be in your corner because they want to be in the corner not because they're afraid of you then you're gonna have to approach them a certain way you have to listen to what they have to say you're gonna have to build rapport with them you're gonna have to admit when they're right because otherwise then you're you're gonna get people who may do what you want in the short term because they're afraid of you. But as soon as they're not afraid of you, they're going to rebel. George, this is so help so helpful um, and so insightful. We're just scratching the surface here. One thing I want to think about as we as we think about moving into part two of this conversation for, for our listeners, which you'll get next week. But being the strong advocate that you are for collaborative conversations, active listening, what we call around Biola perspective taking, uh, I think those—that's it's clear that that's a critical starting point. But I, I, from reading your book, I know that you don't take that as the end point either, that co- coming out of these conversations, actually we need to start solving problems and problems that are in the interest of everyone as opposed to the interest of one particular group or the other. So I'm, I'm curious, what, I, what I'd like to lead off with when we start part two of this is what happens after these conversations to actually begin solving problems and breaking that cycle that uh, you've described as being so unhealthy. So we'll, we'll pick that up when we get to part two coming next time. So. George, thank you so much for being with us here on part one. Thank you. Uh, we look forward to continuing this. Uh, I, I, we didn't even make it through half the questions we have we have for you. Uh, so who knows? Maybe there's a part three eventually. But uh, we, we look forward to continuing this in uh, part two. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Institute for Spiritual Formation. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, part one, with Dr. George Yancey on his book, Beyond Racial Divisions, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Be sure and join us for part two next time in this conversation. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.